Welcome now to Access Utah. Ferguson, Cleveland, Baltimore, Utah. Officer-involved shootings and incidents continue to happen. They're of concern to us, of course. Utah has not been immune to these issues. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, the first three homicides of 2015 were officer-involved shootings. The Deseret News reports that so far this year, police in Utah have shot and killed four people and wounded at least one. The Utah Legislature's Administrative Rules Review Committee is conducting meetings, which are going to expect to continue through the summer, on police training, focusing on use of force and interactions with the mentally ill. There will be other topics considered as well, including body cams and the like. And today on the program... We hope to be joined later in the program by State Senator Jim DeBacchus, who's involved in these issues. And in about a half an hour, we'll be talking with Salt Lake City Deputy Chief of Police Krista Dunn. Uh, right now, we bring in uh, Marina Lowe, who's with ACLU Utah, Legislative and Policy Council for ACLU Utah. Marina Lowe, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, taking time to join us. Uh, so uh, the administrative... Uh, Rules uh, Committee, Administrative Rules Review Committee is uh, holding meetings on this issue, but uh, you know I can surmise this is not happening in a vacuum. It, th- this is a response, I expect, to uh, the, the shootings that are happening nationwide and, and in Utah. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a real phenomenon that's going around, uh, going around the country and here in our state, um, sort of a breakdown of, of relationships between people and, and law enforcement officers and a real desire to sort of get at some of the underlying problems that we are seeing, you know, in Ferguson and Cleveland, the, the places that you mentioned, but also here in Utah where there have been a number of police shootings, many of them sort of high profile, that have gotten the attention of um people in Utah, but also the legislature who's interested in sort of tackling this issue as well. Uh, So Darian Hunt in Saratoga Springs, Dylan Taylor, James Barker in Salt Lake City. We just had the news yesterday that uh, Detective Sean Cowley, the uh, charge has been dropped against him uh, in the case of Daniel Willard. Uh, So these, uh, Utah, as I mentioned, has not been immune. And and that's a stark, that's a stark statistics you might, I don't know if you call it statistic or, or happening fact. First three homicides of 2015 were officer-involved shootings, so uh, this continues. That's right, that's right. And I think it does merit some real um, discussion, and I'm incredibly grateful that the legislature, not just the Administrative Rules Committee, which you pointed out has been focusing on these issues, but there are several other committees as well that are tackling the question of police use of force. And so I think that uh, concerted desire to talk about these issues is really important. Remind us what happened uh, in the last legislative session. There were some laws passed regarding uh, police procedure and the like. Yeah, so one of the areas in which the legislature has made some reforms in the past several years has to do with forcible entry. And that's one of those scenarios, of course, where things can sort of um, amp up and, and you can have this breakdown of relations between law enforcement and people. And that's the sort of scenario where law enforcement comes often in the middle of the night um, and for reasons that um, they would argue um, would make sense from a law enforcement perspective, sort of knock down the door um, in order to you know, solve whatever criminal activity they're, tr- they're trying to get at. Um, and so in recent years, the legislature has taken a, a, a good step forward in terms of trying to put in place um, some better processes before the police engage in this sort of forcible entry. 
So that's been a really positive move. There have been some other things as well. Um, there's been some increased transparency in reporting when it comes to law enforcement actions, um, particularly those sort of situations I mentioned before, forcible entry situations or when SWAT teams are deployed. But there's still a lot of room for the legislature to act, whether it be questions of training, um, uh, de-escalation or mental health training. That's one area that the legislature seems very interested in right now. Body cameras, of course, is another very pertinent question. Um, as more and more of these interactions are hitting the headlines and people are reading about them, um, people are also wanting to know, well, I'd like to see that footage. I'd like to better understand what happened in that situation so we can make sure it doesn't happen again. And body cameras are being touted to some as the solution to, to fixing that problem. Of course, uh, you know, body cameras and uh, dash cams, there can be missing footage, you know, the case of uh, the incident, in, I believe it, in, in Baltimore, and it was it was a young man shooting footage on a camera that, that actually, you know, uh, was able to uh, to capture that incident. Uh, what? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. Body cameras come with their own set of problems yeah. and, in fact, probably raise a whole lot of questions um, in addition to, to perhaps being helpful with the right policies in place. So a, a key is is this trust, right? And, and the way we decide mm-hmm. to view police. Uh, so it, it appears that there there has been an erosion of trust in some areas. And of course, black communities will tell you that they're you know that's been going on for decades. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you know, I mean, from the ACLU's perspective, that's that's one of the things that we are most concerned about. You know, body cameras may be helpful in some ways, but they're never going to solve the problem. And the, the problem at the heart of it does have to have to do with how we work together and engage in this sort of community trust that can and should exist between law enforcement and and people in general. And and the root of that problem, there are lots of different things we can point to. Whether it be sort of this increased militarization of the police, whether it be um, you know the war on drugs. Um, and everything that came with that. Um, there are a lot of things that, that we can point to, but I think that we do need to focus our efforts on making sure that we have better community policing in place, that we have trust between communities and law enforcement, so that when the occasional um, bad situation arises, an officer-involved shooting or the like happens, we at least have some trust to fall back on as well. You mentioned police militarization has been talked about a lot. Uh, is should there be laws in place pushing back against that? Uh, you know, some of this is flowing out to the police, you know, from Homeland Security and the like. And, uh, you know, police are gladly accepting this. But uh, should there be rules in yeah. place preventing that? Yeah, or at least some some reporting of that. One of the things that we have advocated for is some sort of transparency and some sort of accountability on the part of law enforcement when they accept uh, military equipment from the federal government, you know, the public should be entitled to know what sort of equipment is going to your local law enforcement agency, for what purpose, when is it being used, um, you know, when an armored vehicle is being deployed by your local Logan Police Department, um, maybe the Logan community would like to know for what purpose. Is it being used um, to go in uh, for sort of everyday policing activities, or is it being used um, for situations that really merit its use. And so that would be one, one way that we would, we would definitely think that there could be some change in the law. You mentioned also war on drugs. I wonder if you'd expand on that. How, how is that potentially breaking down this trust? Yeah, well, it's just a sort of a, a, a change in the way that policing happens that, that sort of um, 
some people think harkens back to to the era of um, the start of the war on drugs and sort of an increased desire and need on the part of law enforcement to be more militant and and to deal not with um, members of the community simply as um, civilians um, for whom they serve and and need to work with, but rather that this was sort of a more of a war metaphor and sort of a us versus them type of situation. And so, um, you know, it's just even sort of a shift in the way law enforcement thinks of themselves as warriors, as part of the military that needs to fight in a war, um, as opposed to thinking of themselves as law enforcement officers, you know, the beat cop who knows his or her community and and um, knows what sort of problems are in that community, and, and, and it has more of a community perspective. No, we've all always, unfortunately, had officer-involved shootings. We've always had incidents, but it seems like in the last year or so, nationwide and in Utah, it's it's been ramping up. Uh, and I don't know, it would, from your perspective and from what you've been hearing, discussions here in Utah, what's what's behind that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's right. That's certainly the perspective that I think we all share, is it seems like there are more and more of these incidents. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to know what the one particular reason is. I think a, a lot of the things that we've talked about already on the show are, are some of the, the root factors. But I think training has got to be a part of it as well. Now, I'm not an expert on police training. You know, there are probably lots of other people you could get on the show who could talk specifically about the kind of training that officers get. But from some of the things that I have read and some of the the things that I have studied in in recent years, it seems like perhaps we aren't putting enough focus on de-escalation. You know, for example, I think the perfect uh, incident for me that clarified some of these issues was the recent um, police shooting of the guy who was offering to shovel snow in the Avenues neighborhood of Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watched that footage, but I did. Um, there was body camera footage um, prior to the moment when the individual was shot. And, you know, this guy clearly had some mental health issues. I think that was obvious. He refused to provide his ID, even though police asked multiple times. Um, and then you just sort of watch this interaction continue and escalate, and, and ultimately he takes his snow shovel and starts attacking the officer, at which point it probably, you know, the officer probably feared for his life and, and then drew his weapon and shot. But if you look at the situation as a whole, starting with, you know, the, the guy offering to shovel people's yards, it just strikes me that there may have been so many other ways that that situation could have been resolved. The officer was very aggressive with this individual. Um, and so, you know, you just wonder what sort of training do officers receive in terms of scaling back a situation? How much authority do they have to walk away and decide, you know what, I'm not going to go after the arrest today because I'm worried that there may actually be more harm in continuing to pursue this individual. Maybe it's better to stand down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's an area where I think we need to spend a lot of time focusing and making sure that our officers are equipped with de-escalation skills, are equipped with negotiation and talking skills. I mean, we essentially expect our law enforcement agents to a variety of different roles. They have to keep the peace. They also essentially have to be social workers who today are working with people with all sorts of mental health and substance abuse problems. Um, But in order to do that job correctly, I think they really do need to have these sorts of skills to be able to talk and communicate well with the people 
that they are meeting on the street. You know, um, I think that is a good example. Another one I was thinking about when you cited that example was Eric Garner in Staten Island. Uh, a right. Kind of a low-level crime. I think he was illegally selling cigarettes. And, and right. it, it, it just escalated, of course, to the point where, where Mr. Garner died. Uh, so is, you, right. would, you would advocate in, in some cases just police just stepping back. Right. Right. And, and so I think that's where a lot of inquiry needs to be focused on. You know, to what extent are we training officers to step down? And to what extent are we giving them and, you know, our police chiefs communicating to their officers? It's entirely okay to step back and to not get your arrest in this case. Mm. Yeah, I guess Some that... of this goes to, you know, police metrics, like, you know, and that, that's a, a big question as well. Like, what constitutes a successful job as a law enforcement agent? You know, maybe we should be looking at other things, such as, you know, how many civilian complaints has a department received? Or how many arrests that um, law enforcement uh, achieves, ultimately, does the prosecutor dismiss those cases? Um, those might be good metrics for a law enforcement agency to start looking at in terms of sort of reorienting the way that they're doing policing as well. Uh, yeah, as you say, that would uh, that would have to involve uh, policy change on the part of the police. They'd have to change their metrics, I guess, yeah. to, to to where officers could feel like they could de-escalate. Uh, so right. the, the the training, I guess you're advocating that this sort of training, and the legislature is advocating this as well, I believe. This sort of training, what should start in the police academy and then continue, and, and there's specific training that's uh, that's being suggested for for officers. What 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 is that training? Yeah, yeah. You know, so so the discussions up at the Capitol have been fairly general at this point. There's been a lot of talk about whether officers should be receiving not only de-escalation training but specific mental health training. Um, there, there have been some interesting models around the country, one that started in Memphis in particular that sort of combines um, mental health providers with law enforcement and, and gives law enforcement training because one of the things that we are realizing is that a lot of the individuals that, that law enforcement is having to deal with on the street do have mental health issues, and that contributes a lot to these sort of interactions. And so behooves officers to have some understanding and some training of how to deal with the mentally ill. Um, what's been sort of interesting is some of the response up at the Capitol from law enforcement when asked about this question of maybe having mandatory mental health training was real resistance, um, sort of this idea that if training is mandated, it won't be well-received, that it should be voluntary, that the people should just sign up for it if they're interested, but that if it comes as a mandate, officers will be unlikely to, to accept it very well. And, and that's sort of a difficult thing, I think, for um, for people to to understand, and I think many lawmakers didn't did, that didn't sit well with them either. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I believe, from the Desert News. Doug Thomas, director of State Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, uh, talked to the committee, and uh, he said, uh, "Why not mandate this for every uh, officer?" So, quoting him, that's been a question we've struggled with, calling it a cultural issue, quote-unquote, because if officers don't believe in the skills, they won't be used. So I guess he's saying it ought to be a voluntary, they ought to want it. Others are saying it ought to be mandatory. Mandatory. Yeah, and I guess, you know, my, my response is twofold. One, you know, I mean, lots of professions have required training that, that comes with the job. Mine has training that I have to complete every year as a lawyer, um, and that's just a requirement for doing my job. And then furthermore, you know, 
having skills available to me and training available to me that would make me better at my job is something that I'm always wanting to have, you know. So it's a little bit, um, you know, it's hard to understand. And I'm guessing most law enforcement officers do want to have the skills that make them better at their jobs. So hopefully that's something that can continue to be explored. And, and because of the the increasing numbers of people with mental health and substance abuse issues that, that police are encountering on a daily basis, I, I think that it does make sense to try and ramp up this sort of training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, it's a tough job. You, you know, you, you got to you got to be a really little bit of, b- bit of everything. And then there are those times which are, you know, the adrenaline's got to be pumping. And and so I guess that's where training comes in, right? You have to be thoroughly trained beforehand. Right. Right. Uh, and, and it is, I mean, there's no question. <clears throat> it is an incredibly difficult job. Um, and I'm so very grateful that there are people who want to give their life to this sort of service. Um, but I think because it is a job that, that requires such an important skill set, it does require great training as well. The other thing, of course, we haven't touched on, and, and I don't think the legislature wants to take up either, and it's obviously a sensitive, sensitive topic here in Utah, but, you know, we've got a lot of guns in Utah, and law enforcement never, never knows who they're dealing with and what sort of weapons those individuals may have. Um, that's another part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a there's a lot that has to go through an officer's uh, uh, mind. Um, so training, de-escalation, crisis intervention uh, training. Uh, what else, from the ACLU's perspective, can can be done, should be done, to to help reduce or take this down to zero officer-involved shootings and incidents? Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that we are also advocating for is sort of this this um, you know whatever measures can be put in place to increase community engagement with law enforcement. And there's a number of ways that this can this can happen. Probably the most notable is the idea of having civilian review boards. So you have some sort of involvement on the part of communities to have oversight over law enforcement actions. Salt Lake City has a civilian review board that meets and, and reviews these sorts of critical um, officer-involved shooting type events. Um, so, so that can be a great way for, uh, especially if those civilian review boards are, are meaningful and, and do have real independence, um, can be a great way for communities to feel involved with law enforcement and to feel that there is some sort of um, supervision or oversight component. Um, but there are other ways as well, you know, just questions about how well law enforcement communicates with uh, and provides information to their communities. Um, we actually recently just re- released a report dealing with um, and looking at the way in which civilians can um, file complaints with law enforcement agencies and found that most agencies in the state of Utah are, are deficient in, in one way or another in terms of hearing from their communities about the way in which they are doing a good job or not doing a good job in terms of policing. And that can be a huge factor as well in terms of communities feeling um, comfortable with their law enforcement um, agencies. Mm. We're take a break. When we come back, uh, we will continue with Marina Lowe with ACLU Utah. We'll be joined by Senator Jim DeBacchus and by Krista Dunn, who is uh, Deputy Chief of Police for Salt Lake City. We're talking about officer-involved shootings, which uh, seem to continue at an alarming rate, not only nationwide, but uh, here in Utah. More following the break. 
A high school in a low-income part of Cincinnati where kids have more than just academic pressure to deal with. Everybody used to tell me all the time, like, you're not going to make it through high school. You're going to have a baby by 16. So I'm glad to prove all them wrong. I'm Kai Rizdal from Euler School to a college campus next time on Marketplace. It's from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. This is Shalane Smith-Needham of Utah Public Radio. Summer is upon us, and we're celebrating the evening of June 9th when a generous Logan restaurant donates 15% of its sales to UPR. Dine on your own between 5 and 9 p.m. or meet and eat with me and UPR staff from 6 to 8 o'clock. Order from the menu or select one of four special entrees that include vegetable or shrimp fettuccine alfredo, grilled salmon, or a New York strip steak. That's Tuesday evening, June 9th. Information is at upr.org or call 435-797-9507. Thanks. UPR listeners are company presidents, board members, partners, and other top executives. Your company can talk directly to these decision makers with program sponsorship. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We say these cities we all know we're talking about, Ferguson, Cleveland, Baltimore, but also Saratoga Springs or West Valley City. We have incidents in Utah. We're talking about officer-involved shootings and incidents that continue to happen and concern us. Utah has not been immune. According to Salt Lake Tribune, the first three homicides of 2015, for example, were officer-involved shootings. And the Utah legislature is conducting meetings expected to continue through the summer on police training, focusing on use of force, interactions with mentally ill and other issues. And uh, we have been talking with uh, ACLU Utah Legislative and Policy Council, Marina Lowe. Grateful to have her with us. We bring in now State Senator Jim DeBacchus. Welcome back to the program. Uh, It's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. We're also uh, joined by Salt Lake City uh, uh, Deputy Chief of Police, Krista Dunn. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Um, And I understand you're uh, attending meetings in, uh, in Arizona. So I appreciate you stepping I, uh, out to, well, to be with us. We're at the Major Cities Chiefs Conference in Phoenix this week. Let me start with you, uh, Krista Dunn. What's, um, uh, is, is this a topic, use of force, at, at that conference? Uh, most definitely. We've had a lot of discussion about that this week. What's the what's the consensus? I'd, I'd imagine and, you know, police as the general public could probably concerned about, about these issues. I think I think the major consensus is that um, you know the criminal justice world is not working the way that it should at this point in time, and and there can be improvements all over the place, um, from the courts to the police departments to to um, looking at mental health issues to looking at drug and alcohol issues. We can't arrest our way out of of all of these problems that we have. Um, but at the same time, we can, as, as police officers, uh, we can change things in, in the way that we do business um, and make ourselves better. Well, we can't change all those other things. We're the ones that are called to, um, you know, these events and these issues out in the community. 
whether it should be us or not, we need to be able to get there and do the job safely and um, at, at, at an ultimate, um, uh, you know, coming to an ultimate conclusion of having uh, everyone go home safely. Uh, let's see, I'm trying to find this here. This is, uh, I think, this in the Desert uh, News. And you're uh, quoted as saying that uh, training is needed, crisis intervention, de-escalation training, because when a police officer arrives at the scene, if the uh, adrenaline's pumping and, and you're already ramped up, it's, it can be very hard, uh, you know, to, to handle the, the situation. And you talked in this, in, in this article about empathy. An officer needs, needs to have empathy, Right. Um, CIT Academy, uh, we hold about 23 academies a year, train about 900 officers in the state of Utah. And what, we, what we do, there's three major things that we, we want to accomplish, you know, other than all of the education, but for these officers, what we want to accomplish is to, to have them assess their own emotions as they're arriving on a scene um, so that they can effectively interact with the consumer that they, they come in contact with. If they go into the scene and they're already angry about something that happened earlier or if they're in a bad mood today or they had someone else that pushed their button somehow, um, they could ultimately end up escalating the crisis. So we teach them first to assess their own emotions and then how to connect with and, and have or show empathy toward the individual that they're coming in contact with, and then finally to listen and to validate that individual. We talked earlier in the program, before we brought you on uh, with Marina Loeb, about de-escalation and uh, possibility, uh, you know, if it's a low-level crime or whatever, that uh, maybe officers should be taught to, in some instances, uh, walk away. Does, Does that sound feasible to you? I think in most cases, you know, if there's no, if there's no danger to anyone else, um, there is a possibility that office, officers can walk away. And the problem that we have is the way that, that we've trained officers over the last 50 years is to take care of the problem. And if the problem is a low-level crime, they've been taught to take care of the problem. And, and again, this is somewhere where we can improve what we do. And, uh, you know, not every time an officer shows up on the scene is there a backup for them. If there's a, a backup, usually you can get compliance because uh, the individual sees that they're outnumbered. <laughs> yeah. But if, uh, if they're alone, it could be that the best answer is to, to back up or walk away. And we need to, to be assessing those types of things as we as we uh, train our officers, uh, both in, in our regular trainings as well as our crisis intervention training. Let me turn to Senator DeBacchus. Uh, you've been involved in these discussions uh, on the Hill, and uh, I think these are going to continue. Uh, what are the top, maybe give me the top two or three uh, ideas you've heard that you think will have the biggest impact? Well, I think one of the... Uh the relevant issues here that came out during uh, the hearings was that only about 25 percent of our officers have special training for dealing with people uh, with mental health issues. And a lot of times uh, these 
police shootings are with that population. And um, there's there's been some hesitancy to have a special mental health training for all officers, uh, with the argument being made that if officers are forced to take this kind of training, then they won't take it seriously. Or they would, uh, there, there were some opinions expressed that it's better that only a certain group of officers are, are selected with uh, with detailed mental health training. So I, I think one of the things that the state ought to be doing is mandating to police agencies throughout the state that every officer get this intensive certification on how to deal with people with mental health issues, and that if the state needs to cough up some money, they need to. Um it is an entirely different situation to be able to diagnose that somebody is having a mental health uh, issue on how you might react than with others. And being able to I, at least put that immediately into the calculation of the officer as that officer is arriving in a situation, I think, uh, is, is a really good thing. Uh, and, and it may be a step back from some of the problems. There, there has been some pushback in terms of uh, making this mandatory. You believe this training should be mandatory? I mean, I, I have yet to hear a coherent reason why it shouldn't be mandatory, other than people saying, well, we kind of like having an elite squad that can be called in uh, of volunteers, but, you know, uh, a lot of times that's not the situation. The officer that's there is there, and that's when the situation is coming on. Um, we had a, we had a situation in Salt Lake where, um, completely justified an officer shot, uh, a, a, a man who, who attacked the officer, but it, it was clear that the man had mental health issues. And I don't know whether that officer had the training or not, but he may have approached the situation a little differently or might've walked away entirely. Had he been able to diagnose that this man is is clearly having mental health issues, I'm going to walk away. We're going to handle this in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, back to Krista Don, what um, do you do? You believe this should be mandatory for all officers? Well, yes. In, in Salt Lake City, um, I think Chief Burbank was was probably one of the first uh, chiefs in the country that said we're going to to have every single one of our officers that we hire go through uh, the CIT Academy during their post-academy training. Um, and for the last, I believe, eight or nine years, we've been, we've been sending every one of our new recruits to CIT training. Um, there has been a debate across the country about whether or not this should be mandatory. And and I think what people need to step back and look at is we are a different world than we were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 25 years ago when, when CIT um, started across this country. Uh, we were one of the first states to get the CIT program. It started in Memphis. And the Memphis model, um, I went back 15 years ago and brought that program back here the Memphis model is designed for people that volunteer to do this. Well, today's world, um, I don't think we can have volunteers anymore. And, and 
you need to understand we're a little bit at odds with um, CIT International in that way, but but we're not the only ones because it's it, we're, you're seeing chiefs all across the country saying, I want every one of my officers trained. Now, it's in Utah, um, a scaled-down CIT model is actually in post now. They receive about 20 hours of CIT training, but... Um, as far as we're concerned in Salt Lake City, we want the full academy for our officers. Now, there there is maybe one good reason uh, not to do the full academy there, and that is because uh, people that self-sponsor through post, they may not become a police officer for three or four or five years, and we want them trained as, as soon as they go out to the street, not three or four or five years of ago and now coming in and finding a job as a police officer. It's hard to get a job as a police officer, and so some of them it takes years before they get that. But we certainly would like to see them get trained and with CIT early on when they're first going out on the street. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about just briefly what uh, what CIT training involves. What, uh, what are you trained okay. to do? CIT is like I said before, it's a 40-hour training. Um, it involves, uh, the, you know, the three the three mission statements that we have that I mentioned earlier. But during that academy, officers learn the signs and symptoms of debilitating mental illnesses. Um, they learn about medic- medications that are prescribed for individuals for each of these different types of disorders and how those medications affect people. Um, they, they spend a lot of time with consumers, mental health consumers, who have been diagnosed with, with mental illnesses, and they go out there and actually spend time with them and have those, those consumers tell them, you know, some of the things that they experience, some of the episodes that they've been through, uh, some of the, the contacts they've had with law enforcement and, and others. Uh, and that is actually one of the favorite things in the Academy. Another thing they do is we have them um, do an exercise where they wear headphones and there's voices that are speaking to them just like someone else that that a consumer that has that hears voices and they they have to complete exercises and tasks with those voices and they learn a lot of empathy in that time trying to do anything while they're hearing those voices. Um, that's another favorite part of the academy because it surely gives them some empathy to, toward these people. They also participate in um, scenario training where we have uh, mental health professionals and officers who uh, are actors in scenarios. Uh, they're actual scenarios that have happened in police department around police departments in the state of Utah, and they at the end of this whole um, academy have to go into these scenarios and de-escalate the situation. And we actually have a team of officers and and mental health professionals that grade them as they go into these situations. And they have to pass both this practical part of the test and the written written test to um, graduate from the academy. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're talking about uh, Utah's response 
to uh, officer-involved shootings. Uh, this stark uh, fact from the Salt Lake Tribune, the first three homicides of 2015 were officer-involved shootings. And, of course, you know, if you mention Ferguson, Cleveland, Baltimore, you know what we're talking about. And uh, we've had incidents in Utah. The legislature is trying to respond to this with ongoing series of meetings, and we're talking with State Senator Jim DeBacchus. We just heard from Salt Lake City Deputy Chief of Police Krista Dunn, and we're talking with Marina Lowe with the ACLU of Utah. You're welcome to join us. The toll-free number is 1-800-826-1495. We'd love to get your perspective. 1-800-826-1495. What do you think should be done? Uh, upraxis at gmail.com upraxis at gmail.com is uh, our email address I'd like to uh, address the the next broad question to each of you starting with uh, Marina Lowe this is this I think a central issue um, trust and erosion of trust between uh, community and, and the police in, in those interactions and Marina Lowe uh, one component of this you can't escape it I think, including in Utah, um, is is race, and you know some some communities that uh, some would say at least that uh, trust has been eroded at a at a faster rate than in others. Yeah, I, I think that's inescapable, and you know, and we can see that happening even here in the state of Utah at a number of different points along the criminal justice system. I mean, one of the factors that we have been deeply concerned about, um, there was actually a recent report just out of the. Um, University of Utah College of Law looking at what we call sort of the school-to-prison pipeline and the way that even in a school context, we are disciplining more harshly and sending into the criminal justice system students, and particularly those students of color. Um, and so, you know, that, that sort of starts this process and this relationship between certain communities and law enforcement at that very early stage. And, and when we talk about the degradation of trust, at that very point, we're, we're sort of starting along that path. And then if you look at our criminal justice system as a whole and, and even our incarceration rates here in Utah, um, although we incarcerate at a lower rate than, than a lot of other states surrounding us, you know, we still... Uh, incarcerate disproportionately people of color, at least disproportionately to their representation in our overall population. Um, so I think race is, a, is an important piece that we can't forget about um, and, and need to think about not only from a policing perspective, but also when we look at um, recruitment within law enforcement and, and wanting to be sure that, that our law enforcement agencies both represent uh, the communi- communities that they serve and understand the communities that they serve. And, th- and that may involve training as well when, you know, talking about things like um, implicit bias and, and other sorts of things that law enforcement officers need to be trained on. Mm. And uh, Senator Bacchus, the same question to, to you. Is, is, do you see this as a, as a key issue, trust? Well, it really is the most important issue in law enforcement. If if the police officers have the support and trust and faith of the community, then you have a safe community. And if they don't, it doesn't matter how many officers you have. It doesn't matter how big your budgets, there will be no um, security in a community. So we're fighting this balance between the right of every single police officer to go home at the end of the day and embrace his family or her family and not be shot, along with trying to protect 
the public from officers who are clearly acting outside of where they ought to be acting. And I think uh, Utah has been very shy about having a serious discussion. And I think the future of our ability, particularly with a minority population in Utah growing at four or five times uh, the non-minority population, we're creating either the seeds of a Ferguson or the seeds of having a community that is able to not go in that direction by how we interact. And frankly, in our law enforcement community, there is, like it or not, there is still a lot of these are our uh, these are our people, and there's bonding issues, and there's the rest. And frankly, I don't think you want a police force without that. But it would be helpful if we had better structures in place that gave the public confidence that as shootings and as uh, these situations came uh, come up, that it's not just the law enforcement community that's looking into these episodes, whether we're talking about Saratoga Springs or West Valley or other places. The police and law enforcement officials across the state need to understand and stop trying to make sure that this that investigations are controlled and that they're they're only done by people that really understand the situation, which generally is law enforcement. The more open, the more public, the more fair, the more involved, the greater the trust and the confidence of the community, and the better and easier for the 99% of the police officers who are out there every day protecting us. So I do think that is an issue. I think that trust is going to come when the process opens up. I don't think the process in Utah County, for example, that looked into the Saratoga Springs shooting, which now has the federal government investigating, was particularly open. And I would have a lot of questions if I were a minority person in Utah County about how, how all that went down. So you want to prevent future issues. You want to build support for a police department. You have to have a state where when these shootings occur, there is no question about the validity and the decency and the honesty of the investigation. I, w I want to get response to that particular point from uh, Krista Dunn and also to my broader question, but we uh, will go to uh, caller. Margaret Invernal joins us. Margaret, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Oh, thank you. Um, I think one of the things about um, the policemen, they're not particularly friendly to to people. I think if they approached everything with a much more friendly um, uh, intonation in their voices and, and speech, uh, it would be very much better. Uh, as you probably gathered, I was brought up in England where we always thought that the police was our great friends and certainly not our enemies. And, uh, and general the, the way pre, uh, the police um, speak to people sometimes is is not um, conducive to um, good relationships. Okay, thank you, thank you, Margaret. Appreciate that perspective. Thank you. So let me uh, turn to Krista Dunn uh, first, maybe to respond to to Margaret. Uh, but maybe that'd be part of the training. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, police maybe act more friendly to the to the public. 
You know, absolutely, um, officers should be. One of the things that I'm tasked with doing in the police department is hiring officers. And as I interview officers, um, I am much more, and, and, the, and Chief Burbank, uh, this is his philosophy as well, um, I'm much more um, concerned with, does this person appear to have empathy? Does this person have good communication skills? Um, is this person able to, to um, carry on a conversation without acting like I'm ordering you to do something? Those are very important things to us in Salt Lake City. Uh, the, the last thing we look for is a warrior. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that, that I have to keep reminding um, people around me is we are not Ferguson and we are not New York, but we can certainly always do better in Salt Lake City. Um, in terms of... of how we treat the public, how we how we react with the public, we can always do better, even if we're doing well. Now, to the to the question of trust, um, you know, it, it's kind of a, a two pronged question, really, because if if you talk about the general public, I think the trust is there in Salt Lake City. If you just talk about, you know, the seventy five percent, they keep saying, you know, we love our police department, we we trust them, they're wonderful, but but. We also are very well aware that there's a segment of the population that don't feel that trust, and and uh, we're very well aware also of this school to prison pipeline that that's being that's being talked about because it it is real, and that's the segment of the population that we need to continue to improve on how we um, work with and and focus upon and um, interact with that segment of the population. Now, again, as we're, as we're out doing community events and, and things, most of our people are coming to us and saying thank you and, and you're doing a good job, but we'd love to hear from the group that feels that they, don't, they can't trust because they, it's going to be an interactive uh, process for us to improve across this country and, as far as I'm concerned, across Salt Lake City because we need to hear what are those things that, that are going to help us to help you. And just about a, only about a minute for this, but I, I'd like to hear your response to Senator DeBax's point uh, just a little bit earlier about uh, openness and broadening out uh, the, the investigative process when, when we do have uh, incidents. Um, I think that most people that have dealt with Salt Lake City would agree that we are probably uh, the most transparent agency around um, when we have an investigation. Now, there are things in investigations that can't be released for the protection of not just the officers, but for um, the suspects. But um, you'll find that that everything that we can release, we usually release immediately, um, you know, we, it's inevitable that we talk about body cameras here, but uh, our last two shootings, the, the uh, body camera footage was released within 48 hours of the event. And, and we want that to happen. We want people to know what we're doing, how we're doing it, what we're training our folks to do, um, all of those things.
And uh, just uh, again, a minute here at the end, uh, Senator DeBacchus, what's coming up next at the uh, legislature? You've, you're talking about uh, police training. Um, what else are you looking at? A disagreement with uh, my good friends who are the chairs of the committee, who are intent that this committee not look at anything from the perspective of the community, but only from the law enforcement uh so uh, hopefully we're going to have some representatives of minority communities uh, who feel as though they, they have issues with, the police, uh, with some police departments. Again, I'm not talking about Salt Lake City here. I'm talking, we're talking the entire state. And so I hope that one of the places that the committee will go is to look at the issue from the other side, and that is from the minority community, which uh, the committee, frankly, has been hesitant to hear from. We will uh, leave it there. We've been uh, talking on this very important topic with State Senator Jim DeBacchus. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. It's a pleasure. Uh, Marina Lowe, ACLU Utah Legislative and Policy Council. Thank you. Pleasure to, ha- uh, to be here. Thank you. And Salt Lake City Deputy uh, Chief Police Krista Dunn. Thank you. Thank you again for the invitation to participate. And uh, you can uh, continue this conversation at upr.org, where you can hear this entire conversation again. We hope you'll join us for a science topic with uh, Sherry Quinn uh, tomorrow. And on Monday, this important question, what does it mean to preserve nature in the age of humans? We'll be talking with scientists Stephen Pine and Ben Mintier. That's on Monday. Thanks for listening today. Thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. Now from our arts reporter, Ellie Snow, after more than four decades, the rock and roll band, the Doobie Brothers, is still going strong. The group is on tour this summer, and Utah fans will have the opportunity to hear them live later this month. Ellie Snow, who spoke with one of the band members, brings us a preview of what is to come. The Grammy award-winning, multi-platinum-selling rock and roll band, the Doobie Brothers, will be stopping here in Utah on June 10th at the Sandy City Amphitheater. I spoke with Tom Johnston, who is the lead vocalist, guitarist, songwriter, and one of the band's original founders. One thing about this band is we're just basically an American band in that we play music that comes from a lot of genres, and that's what's given this band its sound from the very front till now, and that is rock and roll, of course, R&B, blues, bluegrass, a little country. You throw that all into the hopper, and that's the Doobie Brothers. He says that in addition to the songs fans all know and love, concertgoers will also hear acoustic pieces from their first album that have never been performed live. You'll hear before and after, you know, from various people in the crowd you might run into about how they, you know, I listen to you through this section of my life, or this album did this for me, or this song seems like you wrote it for me or something. And it's always good to know that you've resonated with people that way. That's also very gratifying. For more information about their newest album, Southbound, and their upcoming concerts, visit us at upr.org. With Utah Public Radio News, I'm Allie Snow. Everything.